Wow, thank you, Yannick and Shoka. What a beautiful song and reminder uh, of the church militant. You don't hear that word very much anymore. The church militant, that the gates of hell will not prevail. What will prevail is the church. And even though we are constantly praying for our country and our and watching our culture disintegrate before our very eyes. Uh, just keep in mind our hope is that the church will prevail because Christ is the head. There's not enough evil in this world that can conquer the grace and the love and the power of God. But thank you for that reminder and that beautiful music. Uh, Corky reminded me this morning before I stepped up here, I've, I got to learn to preach without spitting so much because people are getting farther and farther back um, from the pews here. But I did sense a, a sweet spirit here this morning during our time of worship. Uh, maybe it was just me, but it seemed to be that way. And I was tr- just kind of thinking about it, it. It seems like it was almost a carryover from the from really the wedding last night and just a. A, a God honoring celebration where people were celebrating the goodness of God in a young couple, but also just the Christian community to be able to come together in wholesomeness and in the grace of Christ and enjoy one another's company, enjoy music, fellowship, conversation, fun, laughter. It was a great time. And when we live for God like that, he creates a sweet community among us through the Holy Spirit. So I thank him for the sweetness that is with us this morning. And um, Kevin made mention to it. We did have a joyous celebration last night. It was a lot of fun, a lot of laughter. Um, And Kevin, I'm surprised you're able to move around this morning. I mean, with all those dance moves, I was so impressed. I wondered for those that weren't able to see if you could get up and do a demonstration of... Okay. Yeah, but David, I mean, uh, Kevin, boy, he he just really surprised me with his ability to get into the dance grooves there. All honoring to the Lord, of course. <clears throat> but that was just a wonderful time in the Lord. Well, we are in Matthew chapter 5, and we have been doing a sermon series on the one sermon that Jesus preached. And you might be thinking, well, why would it take so many sermons to talk about one sermon? And I would say, well, wouldn't you think that after Jesus preached this one sermon that the followers, those that listened to it, went away or walked away talking about what Jesus said and what he preached about? What did he mean when he said this? And what did he mean when he said that? And What does that mean for us and how do we apply it? And can I be a follower or not? What does it mean to be a follower? And who is this Jesus guy and what's he all about? Well, that's really what we're doing as we expound each passage that Jesus spoke during this Sermon on the Mount. And as you know, in the book of Matthew, the major theme is that Jesus is king. And so here comes Jesus. He's beginning his ministry. He is preaching The word of God, he is encouraging people to repent. And in this particular section, he is telling people what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. Jesus is the king. And if you're interested, here's what it means. And so he begins um, with the Beatitudes. And in order to be the people of God, to be a part of the kingdom of God, we need to be poor in spirit. 
It all begins with this idea of being blessed. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And as Jesus goes through the Beatitudes, you immediately recognize that his idea of what it means to be blessed and the world's idea of what it means to bless, be blessed are opposite things. And the people that would follow after God would be poor of spirit, would be beggarly of spirit, would realize that all the goodness that comes to them from God is completely undeserved. And therefore, it just makes our hearts that more, much more grateful. And the people that would follow after Christ would be a people that mourn over their sin. They care about their sin. They grieve over it when they've sinned against God and have offended one another. Whereas the world often glories in their sin. And people that would follow after Christ are meek. And they're meek enough to be teachable. In spirit, they're merciful because they have received mercy. They're pure in heart because God has Cause them to be through the righteousness of Christ, pure of heart. They're peacemakers. They want to create an atmosphere in a Christian community of peace. And they get persecuted for following Christ. They get persecuted for making these kind of decisions and living like this. But we are reminded that that is what it often takes to follow after this kind of king and this kind of leader. To live this kind of life. To become a people that do what it takes to bring honor and glory to him. And these are the kind of people that will bleed for their king. The kind of people that may even be called to give their life to that king. And that's what it means to be under the royal kingship and leadership of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is the kind of community that we want to be. And so that's what the Sermon on the Mount is doing for us as the body of Christ. It's, it's words from heaven, sacred scripture are, are, are teaching us Sunday after Sunday the kind of people that Jesus wants us to be and can be through the grace of God. And Jesus begins then to talk about the law. And the law is very important to the people of God. The Old Testament people are people of the book. New Testament people are people of the book. We cherish God's word. And so he's talking to us. And there are six commandments that we will look at. We've already looked at one. The first one, it seems very straightforward. Thou shall not kill. Simple enough. And that yet Jesus takes it and applies it to our hearts. And he says it's very simple. Yes, but it's not quite that simple. It's very complex as far as how it's applied, because it's not just enough to not murder but you have to absolutely love and adore and cherish life. Build it up, lift it up, do everything you can to bring life. And then he applies it to relationships. It's possible not to just, just to kill physical bodies, but to through our sins and offenses to let relationships grow sour and die. And perhaps through anger and grudges even become a murderous situation. And so Jesus says, if you come to worship me at the temple... And you know that you've offended your brother. You know that relationship is tense or it's dying. Or there's anger there. And it could explode and leave your gift and go reconcile and then come back and worship me. So Jesus is teaching us what it means to cherish life. And do all that we can. All that depends on you. As far as it depends on you, seek peace and reconciliation. That's what it means to be salt. 
That might, that's what it means to be light. And Jesus now in this passage for this morning will turn to another commandment. Very simple, very straightforward, but again needs to be unpacked. He will talk about the commandment on adultery. And as usual, don't be surprised if the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart this morning in this passage. Let's look at verses 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your, sight, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. How is that for some attention-getting words? These, we need to think about these words, understand these words. Why not commit adultery? What's so bad about it? What do you mean lustful intent? And how can lustful intent be tantamount to the, the, the act of adultery? And is this just for married people? Can If I'm single, can I tune the pastor out now and be thinking about other things? Why is it such a grave warning against it? And hey, if uh, Jesus draws your attention to this idea of passion and lust, and what do we do with our desires that we have? What do we do with the thoughts that come to our mind? What do we do with our attractions? Are we not allowed to think about these kind of things? And why consider plucking out an eye or losing a hand. Jesus doesn't shy away from talking about these things. These are the things that he knows the people that will consider following him have to deal with on an everyday basis. These are the things that we find coming out of our hearts or that we find ourselves confronting from other people's hearts. Jesus, yes, is talking about sex in his sermon. He doesn't shy away from it. You can't talk about adultery without addressing this topic of intimacy, of passions, of desires and thoughts that come to our mind and that we ponder. <clears throat> Jesus knows as fully God and as fully man, he knows these desires. He understands these passions. He understands these attractions from every conceivable angle. And he's teaching them to us. He's taking us deep this morning in regard to these things. And he's teaching us how incredibly powerful this thing called sex or love or more specifically lust can be. It can be incredibly del delightful, so delightful that it can take us to the heavens, if you will. But it can also be so dangerous and destructive that it can take us and lead us to the flames of hell if unchecked. So this thing, sex or lust, love, romance, it can be delightful and dangerous. 
He warns us. It's going to take us one direction or another. It's interesting that our culture is always pushing for um, sexual liberation. I don't think a a week goes by before I'm not um, reminded of some other celebrity that has found their sexual liberation. It's kind of code word for stay out of my business, stay out of my life. I'm going to do what I want to do and act on whatever urge that I want to act upon. Don't talk about chastity. Don't talk about fidelity in marriage. I want it all. I don't, what I don't want is to be told of any restraints when my heart decides that it wants to have some kind of experience. And yet God warns that it's those very passions that can lead us to hell. Jesus says, I mean, in the same context, when you're talking about adultery and lust and he ends talking about hell, I mean, that's how dangerous it is. Hell is that final state of the soul. Hell is that place where where we have rejected God throughout our lives and we stay in this state of rejecting God. And therefore, we we don't we're, we're unredeemable at this point. We don't receive no mercy is extended. No grace is extended. We don't know love. We don't know joy. All of these wonderful things that we have access to now. We are completely alienated from in hell. And we never reach our God-given potential. We were created to love God, to cherish God, and to find great joy and delight in God. And Jesus is warning us, none of those things are possible. In hell. And one of the ways that you can get to this terrible place is by not being self controlled, is by giving yourself to these kind of pleasures and passions. So we're going to look at a few things here. And the first thing I want to consider is what does he mean by adultery and why is it wrong or why is it so wrong? Well, strictly speaking, adultery means um, usually is associated with people. Who are in a covenant relationship. And strictly speaking it means to have sexual relations with someone that is outside of that relationship. Someone outside of your marriage that you entered into. But when you put all of the pieces and all of the teachings of purity and marriage and love and, and, um, and the joy of sex together. Really the, the whole teaching of the Bible is that we are not to... Enact in sexual relations outside of a covenant. It's not just wrong if you're married, but it's wrong if you are not in a covenant to begin with. Because the design of this pleasure, this delight, this unifying power that God has created is to work within the confines of a marriage and not just a union, but a covenant commitment union before God. So it should happen within this kind of relationship by God's designs, by God's standards. It's not just things that um, today our culture wants to come to terms with. Everything is permissible as long as there's mutual consent. It's not that simple. It's not that easy. There are boundaries to things. And what Jesus is warning us here is that it is such a powerful passion and thing. You have to really be careful with it because it can just, it can enslave you. 
And I know that the world promises us sexual freedom and liberation. And the more, the better. And the more experiences you have, the better. And yet Jesus is, is saying, well, I mean, no, no, it's, it's more powerful than you realize. And it will enslave you. And so when, when you hear and you're encouraged by people to experiment and indulge in these things, I'd say be careful. Because if you do and you visit that website enough or if you have these kind of extramarital relationships or engage in this kind of promiscuity, you go ahead and you find that thrill. And then I'd say, OK, now walk away from it. And what happens It's hard, right? So you wanted freedom and you thought you would find it here. But now you find yourself enslaved. You find yourself drawn. You don't want to give it up. And now you're restricted from other things of life. Now your mind is consumed with it. It's just another form of enslavement. So in order for it to not hold us in bondage, we have to exercise by God's grace, self-control. Kingdom people, followers of Christ, know that we cannot base our our morality on our feelings, no matter how strong they are. Despite all the different catchy lyrics that country singers can come up with. I, I don't understand. If it feels so right, how could it be so wrong? We don't want our feelings to guide, our feelings alone to guide our morality. Bible says it's mean to let people go through life thinking in those terms. There are consequences to our thoughts and our actions. So why is it so bad? Is adultery bad because sex itself is bad? Well, unfortunately, the church has a reputation and a history of in some ages teaching that, yes, sex is dirty. It's not a good thing. In the Middle Ages, Thomas Aquinas, the great, brilliant theologian, came to the conclusion that it's strictly for producing babies because God is all about procreation. And he absolutely is. And he loves life and he loves little babies. And one of the reasons for this kind of union and this kind of pleasure is to produce babies, be fruitful and multiply. And he says it's great to enjoy that, but but the the actual passions involved in that, they're kind of carnal and fleshly. And then other theologians jumped on it and said it's kind of animalistic. So don't enjoy yourself in that way. Just get her done and have babies. And so throughout the ages, that is kind of an attitude that some of the church has um, evolved and thought about. And so there's no there's no pure outlet for it. A lot of people didn't know what to do with this, with their thoughts and their attractions to one another came became perfunctory. But we know that it's more than that, as we know, and we were reminded yesterday in Genesis that God created them male and female. Yes, on purpose, two different sexes, genders, and then on purpose, it very intentionally brought them together, created them to need one another in companionship, isn't it interesting that you would think all I need is Jesus? Tell that to Adam. Because God said, no, it's not good for you to be alone. I mean, he had God all to himself, right? How much better could it be than that? And God says, no, that's not the whole picture. When it brings, you need something else in your life. My vision for life is not just you and I. 
It's community. And it's certain kind of relationships, certain kind of loves that need to be sparked. Certain kind of family life. And so he creates this beautiful vision of love and romance between a man and a woman. God's not ashamed to talk about it. If you want to see what it might look like or what God might have had in mind, just read some of the wisdom literature. And particularly read the Song of Solomon. And read it out loud in public. It'll make you blush. As a matter of fact, it is so graphic that the Hebrew translators, sometimes they come to passages and they're not sure how to translate it. What do I say here? I mean, this is a Bible. They're talking about private parts that we're not allowed to talk about it with other people here. But it's just a beautiful picture of love and passion and enjoying one another's bodies within the confines of covenant marriage. It's the, it's the greatest thrill of God's design in this. And God's not ashamed to create it. He's not ashamed to address it or rejoice in it. Or he's not ashamed for people to thrive in it. So that's why adultery is wrong. It's wrong because marriage has a specific design, a specific place. And it is to take place only within the, the big picture of commitment to one another. The big picture of giving yourself to one another. The big picture that marriage has of the two shall become one flesh. So sex was designed for marriage. Marriage was designed for unity. It's a whole package. And when we try to slice and dice it and split it up, that's when we get ourselves into dangerous trouble. So really, it should be like one of the, the ultimate acts of unity. It's, it's that, that, that private, intimate moment between a husband and wife where you're, you're saying, I am giving myself to you. I am opening myself up to you. I am naked before you. I am vulnerable before you, my whole person, including my body. And I want to give myself to you. I don't want to be anything between us. I want to know you as deeply as I can. I want you to know me as deeply as you can. And it cre it's designed to create this kind of unity and special, very unique bond that cannot be created in any other way. My body is no longer my own. Isn't it interesting that Scripture teaches husband and wife, your body is no longer your own? Huh. There's so many individual things that you have to lay aside when you come together in holy matrimony. And that is one of them. So you want to... Commit your whole self to one another. That's, that's the context. That's the big picture of these kind of relationships. Really, we think that even though our culture is saturated with sex, you can't escape it. Unfortunately, it's saturated with a low view of sex. Not a high view of sex. You want a high view of sex? Read this book. If you want to see what it was really made for, what it's, how good it can really get, look at it through God's eyes. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing. But it's only because sometimes self-restraint has to come in there or it can be ruined and defiled. And that's even within marriage. So it's about unity, oneness. That's the soil for it. 
to grow. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.16, Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. He pulls in covenant marriage into this just sleeping with a prostitute. And he says it's not that simple. You can't just separate it like that. Don't you realize by sleeping with a prostitute because sex was designed for marriage and marriage is designed for unity, that there's a sense in which there's a oneness that's coming about? It's an act of saying, I, I want to give up my rights and I want to commit myself to you and, and think about you and not just myself. It's all one big package, the apostles saying. And we want to just separate things and think, oh, it's just that easy. My, I can do things with my body. It doesn't affect my soul. Yes, it does affect your soul. We were created with flesh. We were created as human beings. It's part of our humanity. So what we do with our bodies affects our minds, affects our souls, just like what we do with our minds affects our bodies. We can't. We're trying very hard to separate the things in our culture and act like it doesn't matter. But it does matter. And we're suffering the consequences for it. The whole design for sexual relations is the intent is to become a new person and become a new team, become a new entity. Give up your rights and your individual desires and you commit to that person. So really, it's more done rightly about giving up your freedoms than taking a stand on your freedoms. So you can't remain independent and have a biblical marriage. There's a giving away here. Just like yesterday, um, Kevin gave away his daughter and even the credit card. Got his credit card back. He did get his credit card back. But he had to give his daughter away and get his credit card back. The, it's, it's the giving away. I'm, I'm, you are transferring a person into someone else's loving care and protection. That somebody who's committed, absolutely committed to care for and love and adore and cherish and protect and become one. So sex is designed for you to, to want to commit. It's, it's, it's the soil in which you're wanting to become one. You're wanting to go deeper in a relationship. That's the effect, that's the power that it has. And outside of that, it destroys and enslaves. Timothy Keller says, When you say, I want to have sex, but I do not want to be married, what you're saying is, I want to have sex, I want to have physical oneness, but I don't want to become vulnerable to you. I don't want to really have to make decisions with you. I don't want to be tied to you. In other words, I don't love you enough to marry you. You're doing violence, he says, to something. You're pulling two things that were never meant to be pulled apart. You're violently pulling apart when we think that. He says you should not separate your body from yourself, but that's what you're doing. When you use sex not as a unitive act, but as fun, you really do violence to your soul. When sex is operating in marriage, do you know what it is? It is a covenant renewal ceremony. Every time you have sex in a good marriage, what happens is you are recreating your ability to trust somebody else totally. You're making yourself vulnerable again. You're putting yourself completely in their arms. You're giving your whole self. You're recreating your covenant commitment. 
But every time you have sex outside of marriage, you're destroying the thing God gave you that is deeper than any other thing He gave you to enable you to trust yourself with somebody else. Is it ever any wonder that infidelity just destroys trust? And you spend often the rest of your lives trying to figure out how you're ever going to trust anybody again. Because you've given yourself vulnerably. You've opened yourself up to someone. And they've broken that most sacred of trust. This is real stuff. This this is affecting our culture. We have lots of hurting people in our culture, in our communities right now because of what Jesus is preaching about. Because of a low view of it. Because of a misunderstanding. Because of a refusal to submit. So that's why it's wrong. Second, looking, lusting, loving. What's the difference? How do we think about all these things? In verse 28, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's where we have to tread cautiously or be careful so we don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. He is not saying that it is wrong to look at a woman or vice versa. This is for guys and girls, obviously. That, that's not where the violation has taken place. There's nothing wrong with appreciating physical beauty. It's looking with lust. And King James Version says, whoever looketh on a woman to lust. The idea is that's why you're looking. That's why you keep looking. You're no longer appreciating something beautiful. Now you are lusting. You've you've turned it. It's no longer innocent. Now you want something out of it that you should not want. There's a difference. Now, appreciating things, appreciating beauty is part of human nature. And we do it because we're created in the image of God. God makes beautiful things. God appreciates beautiful things. And we do too. And Uh, Whether it's a physical attraction, uh, whether it's a piece of art, whether it's a beautiful display of flowers, we we look at things and we like them. And they the 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 barn at Timber Creek was just a beautiful structure. And lots of people walked around and marveled at this structure. We we marvel at these things because we're created in the image of God. It's a good thing to do. But when we transfer that over. Looking with the intent to lust, with a motivation to lust, that's when it's wrong. So then what does it mean to lust? It's interesting that in this passage, there were were words available to Jesus that would have specifically described sexual relations. And he didn't use that word. He used a more generic word of lust, which could apply to anything. We we can lust after an individual. We can lust after a job. Uh, We can lust after a beautiful, brand new four-wheel drive GMC pickup truck. We we can lust after those things. So what does it mean? Well, it's it's the wrong kind of longing. It's it's wanting something greedily in the wrong way. The innocence is gone. It's wanting something in an immoral way. And that's... We want it so badly. What happens is our motivation sours. 
And, and all of a sudden now, the thing that we want becomes all about us. And not about the other person. And so if we lost, if we lost after a certain job, we will find ourselves willing to compromise our morals and our scruples to get it. Because we want it so badly, it's all about us and it doesn't matter about other people, what happens to them anymore. We can lust after money. Most people that lust after money, they don't mind fudging a little bit because money is that important to them. But when you, when you join your good natural impulses to appreciate beauty and you combine that with an unhealthy lust and obsession, that's when it goes sour. The problem is that just like with marriage, it's all about serving one another. It's, it's really you're, you're giving yourself away. It's not about what you're getting. It's all about giving yourself away. And that is the Christian worldview. It's so other centered. We are to consider others as better than ourselves. Philip Paul says in Philippians, don't do things out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Humility. It takes place in marriage. It takes place in our everyday relationships. But when we, we lust after things, we no longer care about people. Whereas everything we have is to be used to serve others. Our IQ, our money, every gift and talent that God invests in us. It's not just for us to enjoy. The scripture teaches it's for you to bless the world. I'm blessing you with this for you to bless others. So there's this other centeredness, there's this service mindedness for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for, for many. Mark 10, 45, that's the whole Christian picture, the vision of life and lust inverts it and brings it all down to. I just really don't care about the rest of that. I just care about me and my pleasure and my thrill. And that's all I want. And that's how it comes into play with sexual lust. Not about the other person anymore. It's not about wanting to be one and wanting to be vulnerable. It's about wanting to please myself. At your expense. Timothy Keller says, Lust makes you want pleasure. Love makes you want a person. Love is about Going after the person, wanting the whole person. Lust is just, I'll take the person just because I want the thrill and the pleasure. They don't care about the person. That's why you've heard uh, the terms, oh, they're just using you. It's appropriate. It means they don't really care about you. They're using you for their own means, for their own enjoyment. They're not going to be there for you when you need them. There's no commitment here. The very opposite. There's no trust. They're not entrusting themselves to you. As soon as the thrill's gone, they'll move on. They'll find something else. And you will mean nothing to them. And when we allow ourselves to do that, or when we allow ourselves to be used, we are tearing down the very thing that we need most, the thrill of covenant love, committed love, unconditional love. C.S. Lewis says, if you decide to make thrills your regular diet... And try to prolong them artificially. They will all get weaker and weaker and fewer and fewer. And you will be a bored, disillusioned old man for the rest of your life. 
we turn this beautiful thing into consumerism. We, we devalue it, really. The Bible teaches that we can receive a level of pleasure, pleasure with sin. Yeah, there's a level, but it can't be man, man, maintained. And then our, our, our cravings say what you need is more of that thing. And so we try to get more of it to try to, to keep the thrill going and it doesn't work. So we have to try something else and something else. Trying to go from thrill to thrill. It, it, it does not work. We cannot sustain it. Because we were not created to live in a world of sin and brokenness. We were, were created to live in purity and harmony. And sin goes against the reality of the kingdom of God. And you can't expect sin to keep you at this elevated level of happiness and blessedness and thrill. It's just, it just doesn't work in real life. How kind for Jesus to, to speak to us about these matters. So what do we do then as we wind down with our passions? What do we do with the beauty that we're appreciating out there? And what do we do? Yeah, God made me all man or God made me all woman and I'm a whole package. What do I do with my thoughts? Well, simply put, we keep it pure by not lusting. We don't allow ourselves to be greedy. We control our thoughts. We feed our minds with good things. There's, there's no shortcuts to self-control. There, there, there are... Life is a cause and effect. There are consequences. And God isn't going to remove the joy of sexual pleasure just because there are certain people ruin, ruining it. He created it to be good. That's still His vision. And so we need to bring ourselves into conformity to God's original intent and vision. That's how we are blessed. Self-control. Jesus is saying it's really easy to fall into lust. And when you do, it's going to control you. So you have to learn to channel your desires. And you might have to do drastic things in order to, to make that happen, he says. And these are pretty drastic. You might have to really, really change your life. Whatever it is, it's stirring up that lust. You've got to get rid of it. It's got to go. Whether it's a relationship, whether it's a website, whether it's a magazine, romance novel, whatever it is, it's stirring this unhealthy, impure thoughts up. You've got to get rid of it. You can't expect to conquer it and to keep it pure if you're going to continue to stand at the gates. Needs to go. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. And of course, if your hand cut it off. Now, I noticed that no one takes that literally here this morning. Otherwise, we would have people wearing eye patches and <laughs> arms would be in a sling. But the idea, of course, is that lust is a very, very deadly thing. Don't feed it. We're so deceived in this culture to think that, that we can control this and do what we want to do and still live the life and have the joy. And we cannot do it. It's very dangerous, very debilitating. So you've got to get rid of it. You go to the doctor. 
and you, you, you feel a lump somewhere in your body and you get worried about it. You go to the doctor and you have it checked. And unfortunately, he confirms, he sends you to a specialist and he confirms you've got a cancer. That's a cancerous tumor. What are you going to do? You say, oh, well, it's just a little tumor. It's just a little part of my body. I'm not really worried about it that much. I'm in control. Everything is good. And you do that. What happens? It spreads. Doesn't stay contained. It spreads. You fear for your life. So you don't want to do it. You know it's going to hurt. You know you're not going to. You're going to be in the bed for a while. It's going to change your whole lifestyle for a while. You don't want to do it, but you say, "Yeah, cut me open, get it out." I want to live. Maybe my life won't be the same. Maybe it will be such an invasive surgery that I I won't be able to see like I used to, or think like I used to, or work like I used to, or I'll, I'll lose my greatest gifts. But you want to live, so you say, "Cut it out, get it out." That's what Jesus is speaking to our hearts about, and that's how dangerous it is. Lust can start a fire in our hearts. What do you do with a fire? If our screen or baptistry caught fire and I just, you know, a candle blows over and it's burning behind me and I just keep preaching... And I say, don't look it up and leave. Everything's okay. It's just a little fire over here. What's going to happen? You idiot. You fool. Run for your lives. No. Or get some water. Because fire doesn't say small. It's just going to grow. It's going to spread. That's the teaching here. That's how dangerous it is. And that's how vulnerable we are to it. So our defense is the grace of God. Our defense is to love God. To pray for God's strength, pray for God's spirit, pray for God's heart to see sin for what it is. Pray that we would look at one another with pure eyes. This stuff happens in the church. Can lust happen within a covenant marriage? Can one spouse begin to objectify the other, even though they love each other in a covenant marriage? Yeah, I can turn to that. You can begin to look at your spouse as just an object, as just something to serve your sexual pleasure. This is something we all need to be on guard about. So don't let it nest in your head, as Martin Luther would say. You can't keep the thoughts from coming. You're human. They're gonna, birds are going to fly all over there, but you don't have to let them land in your head. Don't roll out the welcome mat for them. Think about things that are pure and noble. There's no shortcut got to do the hard work. Apply your mind to God's word. Have a scripture for every battle that you got to fight. Tell that to so many people through discipleship. What's your struggle? Where's your scripture to fight it? You'd be surprised at how many Christians don't have scriptures to fight the battles that they have to fight every day. And they try to fight them in their own strength and lose. Fight your battles with God's word. It's the power of God in this. He means it when he says that. And then surrender your desires to God. Goes for singles, goes for married couples. What are your desires? Surrender them to God. Bring them under the submission of God. God will reward us. He tells us. He rewards us for seeking Him. He rewards us for our faith. Trust Him in this. And going without sometimes is the very thing we need. Now, I don't like fasting. 
It's not my favorite thing to do. And you people that like fasting just really irk me because you're like, well, let's fast and pray about this. Thinking, okay, let's pray. Let's not fast. (laughs) But you got to admit, when you fast food and then it's time to eat, is it better or not? And all of a sudden, while you're fasting, all the foods that you don't even like, hmm, what's that? You don't even like that. Mm, I do now. It has a special effect. Give them to God. Let God bring out pure appreciations. Let me close with this story from Elizabeth Elliot. She tells a story about a king. There was an old story about a king who went out in his village to meet his subjects. Everybody said he was a magical king. A beggar sitting by the road lifted up his bowl, expecting the king to give him some money. Instead, the king asked the beggar to give him something. Well, the beggar had a bowl of rice. That's all he had. And taken aback, the beggar just pulled out three grains of rice and put them in the king's hand. The king said, thank you, and he went on. When he looked down, he found three gold nuggets in his bowl, the beggar. He looked up and he said, If only I had given him everything. If you give God your sexual desires, I tell you, they'll be reborn. You have to lay down your life to find it. If you're just being deprived of your sexual outlet instead of fasting, instead of giving them to God, you're going to go on being miserable. Let us love Christ well in this area. Strive for the glory of God to be these kind of individuals, this kind of community. Is this not what we want? The kingdom of God. May God bless the preaching of his word.